Welcome. I'm glad you're here tonight. I want us to continue our study of um, the book of Acts uh, under the under the title of Church Blueprints. As we go through Acts, it's uh, it's actually pretty fascinating to just go chapter by chapter and pick out uh, another characteristic, another trait of a biblical church. Acts is not presented in uh, as a textbook. It is narrative, which is common in so much of, of Scripture. Uh, and yet, uh, pulling out what we find there and, and making application uh, to what the church should look like in the 21st century is really fairly easy to do. Last week, in the first part of, of Acts chapter 4, we looked at, uh, at this ability to be bold in the face of persecution. Well, I want to continue that story beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4, uh, where we left off last week, and I want to talk about um, the church's response. The first part of the chapter is Peter and John, and they are really the the main characters facing uh, a 70-member Sanhedrin, the, the intimidation of the most powerful body of rulers in, in Israel's uh, society. As soon as they're released, and you'll remember, they were released basically because there were no serious charges. Their arrest was because the Sadducees were annoyed by what they were doing. They were released because they didn't really have anything substantial to charge them with. They just tried to bully them into no longer teaching or acting in the name of Jesus. They showed us great boldness by saying, hey, listen, uh, you guys can decide for yourself um, what you think is right or wrong. But as for us, we can't help but tell what we know. They were so transformed by their encounter with Jesus Christ that they really... Uh, they not only were not intimidated, they had no intention of, of, of going into hiding or, uh, or pushing the church underground. As they're released, we're going to pick them up here, uh, going back to find the church where it was meeting. And you see in the outline that I've given you uh, tonight, the historical background continues to be a hostile culture. But then we're going to look at, at the, the blueprint, what it looks like when a church prays. My grandson, when he started school a couple of years ago, when he was in kindergarten, uh, I, I love the story that he, he shows up for kindergarten on his first day and meets his teacher. And his introduction uh, of himself went this way. My name is Micah Myers, and I color inside the lines. <laughs> that was a great point of pride for him. Not only does he color inside the lines, but he's got that firstborn personality that he's a real stickler that the colors be accurate to what the real thing is. In fact, part of the problem typically with children's coloring is, number one, they don't color inside the lines, and number two, they use inappropriate colors. They, 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 don't, they don't know how that works. I think about that sometimes when, when I think about prayer life uh, in, in the life of a believer because... Uh, really, a lot of us, when we sit down to pray, we don't know how to pray appropriately, and we can't figure out how to stay inside the lines of the will of God. Both of those things improve with maturity and practice, but an individual's prayer life 
will naturally improve if they put themselves in prayer in the context of the broader people of God called the church. We have a men's prayer breakfast that meets on Wednesday mornings at 6.30 and usually somewhere anywhere between 40 and 60 men usually assemble on, on, on that day. And, uh, and that's a remarkable thing considering it's 6.30 in the morning and yet we've been doing this for 20 years. And one of the things that I love best about men's prayer breakfast is that there are people who, there are men who come who are intimidated about praying because we, we pray by table. So usually four people at a table and they pray together. And there are people who are intimidated to pray in front of other people. And I say, listen, if you're not ready to pray, then why don't you just come listen? Because listening to other men pray is a way that you learn how to pray. Well, that's what we're going to see here tonight. The church produced praying warriors because they were raised up in a context of a body, a family of praying warriors. Prayer is not something that you just uh, typically, you don't get it from reading a book. Uh, You can get inspiration from reading a book. You can get a renewed determination from reading a book. But prayer is something that you, you, you sort of catch by hanging around people who know how to pray. Look at this chapter. We're going to see um, the historical background, uh, uh, hostile culture, beginning in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. It says, After they were released, speaking about Peter and John, after they were released, they went to their own people. I love that phrase. I love that phrase because I consider a people called Evergreen, I consider this to be my people. And I love that even in the inspired text of the New Testament, They went to their people. Remember, we've already seen in earlier characteristics of the church that that, that the church is not marked by by Gentiles or Jews. It's not marked by by, uh, Scythians or barbarians. It's not marked by slave or free. There is a new creation that makes up the church. And as they're a part of the church, regardless of their background, regardless of their skin color, regardless of, of, of their cultural identity, in the church... They now have my people. They went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Let's talk about these passages because they went back to their, to their people. And what they, the first thing they did was they reported about what they had just been through. Uh, the word had certainly circulated because Peter and John, uh, were were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were, uh, they were kept, first of all, they were kept overnight in prison. So the church would have been aware. 
when it says that they went to find their own people, they knew where to go because I'm certain that part of the secret of John and Peter's boldness while they were facing the Sanhedrin was the fact that there was a church, a church now numbering thousands of people, a church that had assembled and they were doing battle behind the scenes. Listen, Peter and John, they were bold. It said in those early verses that the Sanhedrin looked at them and and they perceived that they had been with Jesus. They saw a family recognition. These two untrained, uneducated men reminded them of what they had seen in Jesus. But I tell you, for all of the boldness that Peter and John had assembled because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, there was also a strengthening of their ability to face this contest uh, of, of power Uh, because the church was praying. They're released. They know where to find the church, so they go to find their people, and they begin to outline the external opposition. They told them everything that had happened. A primary benefit of persecution traditionally is it produces a greater solidarity in the church. I wonder sometimes, not that I'm looking forward to opposition because I'm not particularly But I wonder if disunity, if disharmony that characterizes American evangelicalism today could be because we haven't had much external pressure. You see, when they are really out to get you, all of a sudden those irritating brothers and sisters that you know about, they're not quite so irritating any longer. The church faced external opposition by coming together uh, in real unity as a body. There was an internal fear here because they had an awareness uh, of, of, of how this confrontation uh, really could happen. And yet you see from their prayer that Peter and John were actually elated by the way it turned out. They had, uh, they had proclaimed Jesus to the Sanhedrin. Now who would have thought the morning that they got up and John said, "Hey, listen, I'm going to the I'm going to the temple. You you ready to go?" And Peter said, "Yeah, I'll go with you." They were going about their normal business that day. They didn't set out to to perform a miracle. They didn't they didn't target the guy that was that, that was begging for for handouts at the temple gate. It just unfolded. They didn't mean for it to happen, but when it happened, they ended up presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of the 70 most powerful men in Israel. Instead of walking out of that building trembling in fear, they walked out of that building floating on a cloud because only God could have arranged a private audience with the Sanhedrin for these two guys. Normally, two fishermen like these guys they wouldn't have been able to get on the agenda. They wouldn't even been allowed in the building. And yet God put them right there where they needed to be and they were faithful to deliver a message. They saw the opportunity of suffering for Jesus Christ as a privilege. Now we need to think about that. The church was praying, but I want you to see their prayer. The prayer they pray after Peter and John are released is almost certainly not significantly different than the prayer they must have been praying the whole time that these two apostles 
were, uh, were in, incarcerated. It says here that they, and this shows us how the church prayed. In verse 24, it says, when they heard this, meaning they heard the story of everything that had happened, they raised their voices together to God. Corporate prayer, um, they were in agreement. They had been praying. Now, let me, your mama told you when you were growing up to always remember to say thank you. One of the things that we do on Wednesday mornings is I typically try and remind the men that when we've seen prayer requests that we have prayed for together over the course of weeks and maybe even months, when we see answers, we remember to say thank you. It would be pretty typical, even if you could get a church in the 21st century to come together to have a prayer meeting about some sort of critical moment in the, in the life of the church, once that is resolved, once Peter and John are released and everything's good to go, the typical American church would scatter to the four, four winds. And yet this church, they were just getting started. It says here, and this is their prayer. First of all, they speak about the sovereignty of God. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. That word master is the Greek word despotes. It's where we get our word despot. It means an absolute sovereign, a master of unquestioned power and control. Sometimes we translate it master. Sometimes it's translated creator. It means ruler of all things. When it applies to God, it is a statement of his sovereignty. That's how they addressed this prayer. Master, they said, ruler of all things. You're the one responsible for the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in it. Listen, you want to know how to start your prayer? Start your prayer with a reminder of just exactly who God is. Not because God needs to be reminded, but because before you get to the request part of your prayer, it helps you to be reminded. Master of the whole universe. Creator of every aspect of the cosmos. The one who filled every part of our, uh, of our galaxies and, and, and universe. That's who we're praying to. The sovereignty of God transitions to the wisdom of God. They say here, um, verse 25, You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. They're talking here about a prophecy that reveals that nothing surprises God. Nothing is unknown to Him. Now think about this. They've already started with a statement that God is sovereign. They are acknowledging that God is ruler of all things. And here they go to the Old Testament to, to draw from a prophecy uh, from, Psalm, uh, from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, by the way, is a messianic prophecy. It, it, it talks about the coming of the Messiah. Here... Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? They, they look back to the Old Testament and what they found was this very moment in time was already known and predicted 
by God through his prophets. He had already revealed. Why does God speak through prophets? Well, sometimes he speaks through prophets in the Old Testament because it is an encouragement to the people the prophets themselves are speaking to. In other words, uh, for example, he spoke through Jeremiah. Jeremiah was the prophet at the start of the exile, and part of Jeremiah's message was, exile is coming, you're going to go into, you're going to be carried off by a foreign power, but it is for a set time. Seventy years will pass, and then you'll be released, you'll be restored, you'll come back to the promised land. The message there was to be an encouragement to the audience who heard it the first time. Here, the psalmist is talking in words that would encourage those that it doesn't ultimately matter how the world attacks the people of God. God has this. He already knows. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by anything. So there is an encouragement to the original audience of a prophecy. But then there is a double encouragement to the generation that lives to see the prophecy fulfilled. Because the church, they didn't, they didn't wring their hands and go, what are we going to do? We didn't know this was going to happen when, when we started the church. We were, we were back on Pentecost. We were just in from out of town. And we just got caught up. And Peter stood up and preached. And the Holy Spirit descended on us. And we gave our lives to Jesus. And we just got, got in on this. But, but we didn't know it was going to be like this. No. The church understood they didn't have to go back and search. They already knew. They knew the the Bible well enough that they knew this was coming. And when they go back to to pull out these verses from Psalm 2, they can say, see, nothing's happened to us that, that toppled God off of his throne. He's not caught off guard. He's not surprised by any of this. There's a tremendous encouragement there to know that God... Uh, knows what is going to happen to us. We are in His hands just as much when our circumstances are difficult as we are when our circumstances are easy. The government of God is outlined beginning in verse 27. Now, I love this because think about, think about this. The church is a new community. Now, part of being a new community, a collection of new creations no longer defined by their backgrounds, their races, their cultures, but but by the fact that they're being transformed by the Spirit of God that resides in them. But what that means to be in a new community is it means to be set apart from literally every other segment of human population. I mean, look at everybody that's on the other side of this equation. They said, for in fact, in this city... Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, that is the Jewish king and the Roman governor. Okay? You've got the national government and then you've got the empire. Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, that is all the non-Jews in the world, along with the people of Israel, that's all the Jews in the world. I mean, are, are you, are you catching on here? They're, they're saying, Lord, um, we're going to stand with you even though literally everybody is against us. One of the real dangers for the church in America in 2020 is that the church by and large in our generation is scared to death to stand alone. We want to be liked. 
We want people to, you know, be okay with what we do here. We want to, and, and we tell ourselves all kind of stuff. We say, well, well, you know, um, you know, being hard-headed never never brought anybody to Jesus. Yeah, well, being soft-headed never brought anybody to Jesus either. People come to Jesus because they're drawn by the Spirit of God. Where's the Spirit of God put on display? Not in mushy Christianity. The Spirit of God is put on display when people live and breathe the life of Christ because they really believe that is everything they have. In this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. (laughs) In other words, nothing that has happened has been allowed to happen outside of God's plan. The Sanhedrin had done their worst. They had caught, they had created an atmosphere of intimidation. They had uh, succeeded only in solidifying the determination of the church to fulfill God's intentions for them. <laughs> they wanted, they wanted God. This is the strangest prayer right here. Verse 29. Um, And now, Lord, now see that the first part of this prayer is all about God. But this is where this prayer takes a real weird twist. Verse 29. And now, Lord, consider their threats. Well, that part's not that weird. I mean, we'd probably pray that prayer. Lord, did did, did you see what they did to us? Do you see... That, that they're trying to shut us down? Do you, do you see what, what, what they're trying to do here? Oh, Lord, please relieve us from this hostility. Save us from this opposition. Let us have favor with the authorities. I can just picture the church in America praying that way. Only that's, that's not where the twist comes in. And now, Lord, consider their threats. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. What? They said, first of all, God, see our dilemma, but then make us bold. One would expect them to ask God for deliverance from persecution. That's almost certainly what we would have prayed, but that is absolutely what they did not pray. Instead, they asked for more of the same, more signs to uh, to reveal the power and the authority of the word of God that was being proclaimed through them. They wanted more boldness to proclaim the word. They knew that if they had more boldness, they would almost certainly, as a result, have more persecution. And there's this vicious cycle that begins. A number of years ago, uh, I'll never forget, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention meeting, and uh, and we had a... Southern Baptist Convention meetings are typically you know, two solid days of church business meetings. I mean, they're just awful. <laughs> I mean, especially for, especially for a guy that doesn't do many business meetings anymore. And, and I was sitting in, in the, in the, in the great hall and they were coming and, and they, we were in a business session, but they took a break. And in the middle of the business session, uh, the president of the convention stepped up and he began to talk about a pastor that, had just arrived that we didn't know for sure was going to be able to come, but he had managed to be here. 
and he wanted to introduce him. He didn't call him by name, but he was a, a house church pastor of an underground congregation in China. He had been allowed out of the country to do some international travel, and here he was. They shut off the uh, the broadcast. The, the 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 message couldn't go out, and with a translator, this Chinese house church pastor began to speak about his situation. Now remember, I'm I'm half zombie because, you know, we've been in business meeting and I haven't really been paying that much of atten- much attention. And all of a sudden, this guy starts to speak, and I'm listening to the translator, and all of a sudden, you can feel in a hall with thousands of people. You know, there's hundreds of side conversations, and people are coming and going, and, and, and it's just, you know, kind of the way things work in big convention halls. And something happened, and people stopped. They stopped whispering. They stopped talking. They stopped moving around. They were on the edge of their seats listening as this very unimpressive little small Chinese man began to speak and then be translated by by the man standing next to him. And I'll never forget what he said. He began to describe the persecution that his church had experienced. He didn't tell us the city that he lived in. He he wasn't introduced by name. We didn't have any of the details. But he began to describe that that his church uh, once had a building, but that the building had been burned down by... Uh, government authorities. They had had um, several pastors uh, arrested and that he was the latest pastor of this church. Uh, but he fully expected that in, in, the, in God's timing, uh, his turn would come, as he put it, uh, to be honored with the privilege of being arrested. Well, the room is dead silent. And then he says this. I would ask my brothers and sisters here today to pray for the church in China. But please don't pray that we will be relieved from our persecution. Pray that we will be bold in the face of our persecution. Folks, that is a distinctly un-American prayer. And I remember we stopped the convention. People gathered in small groups. We began to pray. A business meeting was transformed by a little man who came from a faraway place and made a simple request. Pray for us, not that our circumstances would ease, but that we would be sufficient to the moment that we've been given. If we're going to see the first century church reproduced in the 21st century, we're going to have to recover a mindset that says it is a privilege to be put in a position where we have to stand for Christ even when everyone around us says no. And until we capture that in our minds, we cannot be the church that this church was. 
Lord, see our dilemma, but make us bold. In verse 30, he says, let, he says, may your servants speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They said, let us, let us speak with boldness in such a way that our determination to stand for Jesus provides you the opportunity to show your hands of power in the lives of people. Listen, somewhere in that church, somewhere in those thousands of people, there was a guy attending his very first prayer meeting. And he walked into the room on his own two legs for the first time in his life. And what he saw were people saying, Lord, do it again. Whatever it requires of us, whatever position we have to be put in, do it again so that your name receives glory. Listen, this guy has not only not stopped dancing, he hadn't stopped telling people about his encounter with Jesus Christ, a Jesus that he may or may not have ever seen actually walking into the the hallways of the temple, but a Jesus he certainly met through Peter and John. Man, To be a part of a prayer meeting like this. Let me show you what happens when a church prays. Beginning in verse 31. It says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God boldly. Let's talk about this. The first characteristic of a church that prays is what I've called heavenly worship. It said the place was shaken. That is not hyperbole. That is not poetic license. It means the more of God that we are given, the less able earth is to bear the weight of Him. They were so desperately caught up in bringing glory to God that God just showed up at the prayer meeting. And when God shows up, the foundations rumble. That's what happened here. You ever been a part of a meeting like that? Just once or twice in my life have I been in places where I felt a corporate awe of the Spirit of God like it's being described here. One of those times was that Southern Baptist Convention meeting. The most unlikely place on the planet. And yet God showed up. And while there were thousands of people praying that day, God showed up initially through one guy. You see, the temptation when it comes to prayer is the enemy whispers in our ears that alone we can't really do much. The fact of the matter is, sometimes one person praying is precisely what God uses. Uh, Dwight Moody was, um, I, I I hate to say it this way, Dwight Moody was the Billy Graham of the 19th century. It's more accurate to say Billy Graham was the Dwight Moody of the 20th century, but you get my, my point. Dwight Moody was the first Christian evangelist 
Uh, he died in 1899. He was the first Christian evangelist to have documented that he preached over the course of his ministry to more than a million people. First person ever. He basically invented crusade evangelism, speaking in, in huge arenas and, and, and athletic stadiums and, and, and places like that. Um, Moody had a real connection uh, to Great Britain and so often would travel back and forth across the Atlantic and he would, he would live there and preach for a few months and then he would come back to the States. Moody Bible College in Chicago, Moody Church, uh, all named after uh, this great man. Uh, he preached at a church in, in London one time, not, not Joseph Parker's church, not Charles Spurgeon's church, just a, a little pretty insignificant church. He had a free Sunday morning. He had been invited to preach. He went and preached in the, at this church. And he stood up and delivered his message. Nothing spectacular. Uh, he had preached many times in many places. This church received him well. There were polite compliments as, as they filed past him, shaking their hands on the way out the door. He came back that night. The invitation was to preach morning and evening. He came back that evening and began to preach. And he says by his own writing that the Spirit of God showed up in that place in such a dramatic presentation that that there was that there was weeping at the altar. There were people that got saved. There were marriages that, that were restored. There were relationships that were made right. And Moody watching all of this with the seasoned eye of an evangelist understood that something had happened. There was something dramatically different between the morning services and the evening services. And he began to explore. He talked to the pastor. He said, we've got to find out what happened here. And as the pastor made inquiries, it turns out that there were two widowed sisters that lived together coming to the close of their, their days. One homebound, unable to get out, unable to walk much. The other still able to go and do and and, and shop and those kinds of things. The, the one sister went to church on Sunday morning and came home after church and said to her other, to her sister, uh, Dwight Moody delivered the message in our church today. Really? The, the Dwight Moody, the evangelist from America? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's there and he's coming back tonight. In the middle of their lunch, the homebound sister excused herself and went to her room where she closed the door and stayed the rest of the afternoon. Turns out she had been praying for spiritual awakening and revival for years. And she knew by the testimony of the Spirit within her that this was that day. She spent Sunday afternoon pleading with the Lord for, uh, for a, an outbreak of His Spirit in their church. And as they met again that night... God answered those prayers and showed up in a mighty way. Moody made a visit to, to, to the home to meet this, uh, this, this frail warrior. And he said, I knew somebody was beseeching the throne room of heaven because he knew that God acts in response to the prayers of His people. Don't let the enemy tell you 
that you don't have anything to contribute? Listen, you realize with the possible exception of the Jesus People movement in the in the 1970s that, that kind of um, had some influence in several places, um, the Billy Graham Crusades in the late 40s and early 50s, really we haven't seen uh, a real spiritual awakening in this nation since the Azusa Street Revivals of 1906. If you look at the First Great Awakening... And then the Second Great Awakening, and then the Charles Finney revivals, and then the Prayer Awakening of 1857 and 58, and then the, the Azusa Street in, 2000, in, in 1906. What you see is there is a pattern of spiritual awakening in this nation that happens about every 50 to 60 years, almost on a cycle, except now. Now we're approaching 120 years since the last spiritual awakening in this nation. Now, now I'm not going to suggest I know all the ins and outs of the ways of God, but think about this with me for a minute. If we travel 60 years from the revivals of 1906, that puts us smack dab in the middle of of a decade where we made prayer in schools illegal, where we started the legal process to put abortion on the table in America as a legal procedure. And where we are today with buildings burning in our streets, why are we here? One reason we're here is because we missed our last revival. We didn't get a reboot. We didn't get to reset our culture. We didn't get to bring uh, worship back to the forefront. I'd say it's time in that 60-year cycle, it's about time for the next one to hit. Not that they're automatic. God chooses when he moves among his people. But I will tell you this. I don't care who wins the election on November the 3rd. If we don't see spiritual awakening within the next two years, we won't live another 60-year cycle as a nation. So, well, that, that's... It's kind of heavy for a midweek service. I really didn't, really didn't come waiting for that, that load to be dumped on me. But here's what I want you to get. This business about a church being a church of prayer, it, it's not something that we just do because, because it's, it's a nice program that we can add to our menu of things that we do here. I would say the survival of Christianity in this country is at stake. Oh, you hear that kind of language about the election. Oh, the survival. Survival of the nation is at stake. Listen, the spiritual awakening is not going to arrive on Air Force One. But we better get serious about being a people of prayer. One of the things that, that I have uh, done, there you, you may not know this about 
about Zach Dietz, our worship pastor, but um, but he has one of the most remarkable hearts for prayer of anybody in this church. And I've cleared some of his responsibilities. I've rearranged some of his job description because I've asked him to take leadership in the areas in our church that we have seen prayer spontaneously begin to bubble up. God's people meeting together to pray. Life groups, but also uh, what we call triplets, groups of three that pray together on a weekly basis, uh, small groups within ministry teams that are praying together on a weekly basis. And I've asked him to work alongside me to help take what God is doing at Evergreen in the realm of prayer and draw it together into a movement, not a program, a movement. Because I believe that if we bypass this characteristic of the New Testament church, we cannot possibly reproduce what we see in the book of Acts in the 21st century. This characteristic, as they all are critical, but this one is that is just that critical. We want to be a place where God comes and shakes the foundations because the earth is not able to bear the weight of His presence among His people who are called evergreen. It says here, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God boldly. Bold evangelism here. This is the evidence, I've said this before, the evidence of the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. It is not speaking in tongues The evidence of the Holy Spirit is always evangelistic boldness, the courage to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. This is not a second Pentecost, but it is a fresh filling, a renewed awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives. It's what we might call a revival. You say, well, how could they have a revival? Pentecost was just a few weeks before. Listen, we ought to have a revival every Sunday when we show up. Because we leak. And no matter how full of the Holy Spirit you are when you leave on Sunday morning, by the next Sunday morning, we need an infusion. We bleed internally. The early church had no issues with the fact that what God did on Pentecost, it wasn't a second Pentecost, but it was a similar event in that He just filled them to overflowing with His Spirit because that made them bold. Every time we see the Holy Spirit show up in the book of Acts, it produces evangelistic boldness. It created a unified fellowship. Look at verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. Let's talk about this first unified fellowship. Everyone had one heart and one mind. There were no competing agendas. Everyone was too occupied with ministering to each other that they were too busy uh, trying to reach a lost world. They didn't have time to be bothered with trivial personal preferences. They didn't care what color the carpet was. They didn't care what time the service started. The church that I pastored, my very first church years ago, probably an occupational hazard of being a history major is I I used to love to read um, church business meeting minutes. 
My first church was, uh, we celebrated 110 years when I was pastor there. And so there were decades of, of, uh, of old dusty minutes and I used to browse them and, and just read them and, and, and just giggle at some of the stuff that I would run across. My favorite was probably the, the time I found a business meeting. Apparently what had happened was they were having a fuss in the church about whether in the summertime the Sunday evening service should start at 6 o'clock or at 7 o'clock. You see, there were those who wanted it to start at 7 o'clock. It was a farming and ranching community. Those, those men typically were working on Sunday afternoon, some feeding cattle and other things, and they needed the later service time so they could finish their chores and, and make it to church. But there were younger families who were not a part of the, the ranching community. They wanted the service to be at 6 o'clock because, because then they could still have uh, plenty of evening time left after church, especially in the summertime when the sun didn't set until about 9 and so there was a little bit of a fuss about the start, and so they had a business meeting, and uh, and the minutes of the business meeting, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. The the motion it, that that passed, that passed something like sixty forty. I don't remember what the percentage was, but I remember this is the motion that passed. the The motion was that the Sunday evening services of First Baptist Church Throckmorton will begin at seven o'clock p.m. Forever. Wow, what an awesome motion. You know, in, in Baptist life, forever lasts until somebody makes a motion and it gets reversed down the road. But that was the motion, that it would be at that time forever. This church in Acts didn't have any time to mess with those kinds of things. They were of one heart and one mind because they were preoccupied with something too important to be sidetracked by those kinds of things. They didn't have squabbles. They didn't have disagreements because they were caught up in the reality. I mean, if you're in a place where you're filled with the Spirit of God, you feel Him flowing through you, the building itself is rumbling under His presence, guess what? You don't spend time worrying about too much other stuff. A unified fellowship is what happens when a church prays. But then, the last part of verse 32 tells us about sacrificial giving. Let me read that part of the verse again and then drop down to verse 36 and 37. It says uh, in verse 32, uh, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. In verse 36 and 37, it says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Sacrificial giving is something that happens when a church prays. They had the, there was a Greek ideal of friendship that, that is maybe communicated somewhat here, but uh, we get lost in this verse because, because we misunderstand what is being said here. It says, um, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. That verse is regularly misused to argue that the early church was a kind of socialist or communist organization, that everybody brought all of their possessions and, and laid them at the feet of the apostles, and, and then it was, it was doled out from there. 
That's not at all what, what's happened here. In fact, the reality is uh, the New Testament uh, gives us specific examples uh, all the way through the book of Acts of private property. In fact, I, I made some notations here. Um, in verse 32, the Christian sharing uh, of, of their possessions is set forth as, an, as the ideal. Remember, they were using the Old Testament for their text because they didn't have a New Testament yet. This language that uh, when we go back to the Old Testament, what we find out is that in the economy that God set up for Israel, there were certain regulations. For example, um, you weren't supposed to charge a, a brother Israelite interest if you loaned money. If you were a farmer, you weren't supposed to harvest all the way to the edges of your field. You were supposed to leave a fringe of unharvested uh, grain or whatever your crop was because it was built into the structure of the system where the poor could go into those those stretches and harvest for themselves enough to eat. It was a way of providing charity, but it still required the dignity of work for, for the poor to go and, and, and provide for themselves. God actually built into the system of Old Testament Israel a structure that didn't last because, uh, because the, the Jews fell victim to, uh, to greediness and, and, and other normal human nature issues. But God's system was designed so that this was the ideal. There would be no needy among them. Well, that's what this is referring to. The church, for a time, so filled with the Holy Spirit, so marked by prayer, so identifying as my people, a new creation different from all of the things that have made us different, this thing that makes us the same. It was a, it was a, a structure where they, they set out to make sure that there was no needy among them. Now think about this. There is a greater um, sacrifice when you're talking about selling property and giving the donation. Uh, that's actually a greater sacrifice than a, than a monthly gift out of your income. Why? Because the example in verse 36 and 37 uh, of Joseph or, or the one that was called Barnabas, he sold a field and brought the money and donated it well, by selling real, real estate, real property, he's in effect reducing his own net wealth and in the process reducing his own level of security. He wasn't just giving out of the excess of, of money on hand on a monthly basis. He was actually liquidating real assets, reducing his own security level, but he wasn't bothered by that because the mindset was not that I have what's mine and I might give a little bit of it to you. The mindset was if I have it and you need it, you can have it. Wow. You ever been in a church like that? A church where needs were met? simply because the goal was to have no needy among us? You say, oh, but you know, there's always people who take advantage of that. There are always people who try and, try and get something for nothing. There are always people who try and, try and soak the church. Yeah, there are. 
We're going to see when we get to the next chapter what God thinks about that. But their goal was not to worry about whether they were going to have enough. Their goal was to make sure that together they all had enough. What's mine is yours if you have need of it. Sacrificial giving, even to the point of reducing my own personal security. They didn't really put it in those terms because if you have just been to a prayer meeting where God rattled the foundations of the building, I don't think financial security is your biggest concern in that moment. Well, what else? Verse 33, it's what I've called visible discipleship. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was on all of them. It was a continual practice that great power was utilized, that great grace was received. In other words, there was a tangible transformation that was evident. In other words, they were becoming Christ-like right before the eyes of everybody watching. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, that, that happens in, in our generation is we tend to say things like, well, you know, sanctification takes a lifetime. Christ-likeness is a, is a journey. Yeah, that's true. But here's the thing you've got to remember. Uh, when, you, when you take a, a healthy baby home from the hospital, born in the hospital, you take him home, you know that that healthy baby has years of growth ahead of him. But you also know that when you count fingers and toes and arms and hands and, and ears and eyes and, and all the body parts, that that baby, while it does have growth ahead of him, he has everything necessary to put full humanity on display. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, yes, it is true that we spend a lifetime becoming like Jesus. But sometimes that becomes an excuse. We just say, well... You know, I'm, I'm really not very mature in the faith. I, I, I really don't have much experience. Listen, I've had people that were Christians for 20 years tell me that. No, you had everything necessary the moment you came into Christ. The Holy Spirit took up residence in you. You didn't have all the knowledge that you needed. You didn't have all the practice that you needed. But you had all the basic realities of Christ in you from the very first moment. I, I, you know, I, I don't know enough to go tell somebody about Jesus. Listen, you knew enough the minute you asked Jesus to save you, you knew enough to tell somebody else how to do what you just did. There is no reason for us to make this idea of Christ's likeness out into this 60-year span where we can just excuse our lack of growth as though we're just on a snail's pace. You will grow in Christ's likeness as fast as you throw yourself into the challenge. Why? Because Jesus wants you to grow more than you want to grow. So if you'll get on board, if you'll spend time in His Word, if you'll learn how to pray, if you'll put yourself in the fellowship of the saints, if you'll practice stewardship of your resources, 
If you'll practice the habits that a, that a follower of Jesus practices, guess what? You're just going to grow at, at, at lightning speed. So here's the question. What's keeping you from growing? Not spiritual opposition. Not the inadequacy of the Spirit. Not the absence of a church in which to find an atmosphere to grow in. Ooh, I'm narrowing it down. If we're not growing in Christ, the only explanation is we're not serious about growing in Christ. You can grow in this church in Christ and you can grow at lightning speed if you set your mind. Remember our, our, our memory verse for this month that we say on Sundays? It's from Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. How do you grow to be like Christ? Didn't your mama tell you that you're going to become like who you hang around with? If you hang around with Jesus more and you hang around with the mainstream media less, guess who will become like? Their discipleship was visible. It was tangible. It was evidential. And then extensive ministry. Look at verses 34 and 35. For there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as he had need. Let me talk to you about that for a minute. There's a remarkable... I don't want you to miss. There's a remarkably un-American practice here. It is that they liquidated their assets, brought the proceeds to church, and gave them as undesignated gifts. You know, I knew a pastor one time. It wasn't me. I knew a pastor who pastored a church that couldn't pay their utility bills but they had more than $100,000 in the bank. Designated giving. You know what designated giving is? It can be something over and above. Ideally, ideally, it is giving over and above what we normally give. We give out of what God has offered to us, we are faithful with the resources that he has put in our hands. But there's sometimes when moved in our hearts by a particular opportunity or a need or just provided with extra uh, from somewhere, we give to something above and beyond. And we say, I'd really like it to go to this. This is a need in our church. This is a need in our ministries. And, and I'd like the money to, to, to go to this. That kind of designated giving I'm okay with. But I'm talking the, the dangerous kind is the kind that gives all of their money as designated because it is, a, it is a way to exert control over the purse strings of the church. How does a church not able to pay its utility bills but have six figures in the bank 
except that there were people who refused to trust the spiritual leadership put in place in that church. And so they gave their gifts, but they had strings attached. It could only go to their personal priorities. I lost a church member one time in another church. Pretty wealthy man who was put out with me. Um, not that uncommon in occurrence, by the way. Um, I, I don't look at giving records. That's not. That's never been a part of my uh, approach as a pastor. Um, if I'm going to bring somebody on the staff, or if I'm going to put them in a significant role of leadership, I might. I might glance at their giving records just to make sure that they are faithful in that aspect of their Christian walk. But I don't. I don't study those records. I don't know who gives what. I don't really care to know. But after he left, I just couldn't contain my curiosity. And so I went and checked. And sure enough, as a wealthy man in the, the year previous, he had given $29,000 to the church. Fairly respectable amount. 100% of it designated to his pet projects. Oh, did I mention that he was chairman of the finance committee and controlled the church budget? Yeah, that's not an axe church. The church has to be at the place where they have a trust of leadership. Go all the way back to Acts chapter 1. And what we saw was the first mark of the church, of, of a biblical church, was that they were prayerful in the selection of godly and biblically qualified leadership. And when the leadership is there, it should be trusted. And the giving was done. It was laid at the apostles' feet without strings, without designations. It was put there so that the leadership could apply it where it was needed. It says, then this was then distributed to each person as any had need. Not socked away, not stored up for a rainy day. Listen, the church, do not judge a church. Well, let me rephrase that. I started to say, do not judge a church by how much they have in their savings account. I would put it this way be wary of a church that has an excessive savings account. Why? Because God doesn't give us money to squirrel away. Well, we're saving it for a rainy day. Look outside, it's raining right now. In 2020 America, if the church is not doing ministry right now, we never will because we live in desperate times and the church needs to step up and be the church. I can talk this way about giving because Evergreen has always been a remarkable church when it comes to giving. I'm, I don't have to harangue you. I don't have to use guilt. I don't have to, 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 to issue sob stories I'm just telling you, I try and teach what the Bible teaches about giving, not because I think we need more money, but because it's in your best interest. It's in our best interest as a family of faith for us to have the right mindset about the resources God puts in our hands. They gave so that there was no needy among them. All of this, the worship the evangelism, the fellowship, the giving, the discipleship, and the ministry. All of those things flow out of a church that is marked by prayer. 
Leonard Ravenhill has this quote that, uh, that I copied to read to you tonight. Um, Leonard Ravenhill, a, a devotional writer from a, a different generation, he said this, The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many resters, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. People who are not praying and praying. The secret of praying is praying in secret. A worldly Christian will stop praying, but a praying Christian will stop worldliness. Tithes may build a church, but tears will give it life. This is the difference between the modern church and the early church. In the matter of affecting, in the matter of effective praying, listen to this, in the matter of effective praying, never have so many left so much to so few. Brethren, let us pray. Are you a man or a woman of prayer? Well, I don't really know how. I, I, my mind wanders. I, 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 it's hard for me to concentrate. Listen, let's go back to where we started this evening. It's like a child learning to color. It's about figuring out the right colors, figuring out the things that God wants you to pray for, and then praying, then coloring within the lines or praying within the boundaries of, of what God is calling us to. If you want to know how to pray, be humble enough to find somebody to pray with. I promise you, if you're struggling in your prayer life, if it is a hard thing for you to do, maybe you like reading your Bible, but prayer is just hard. Your mind is, is constantly distracted. You've got your to-do list running through your head and, and, and you can't ever... Find somebody to pray with. What we call triplets here are three people who commit to pray together. The Bible tells us that a strand of three cords is not easily broken. Find two other people, form a triplet, and once a week meet together to pray. You will learn how to pray by doing it. It is, of all the disciplines of the faith, prayer is the most easily learned discipline in on-the-job training. So find two people. Say, I, I don't know two people. Sure you do. Come on, meet me halfway. Come to one of your pastors. We'll help you find two people. If you would find a time once a week to meet with two other people to pray together, it will begin the process of tangibly transforming your prayer life. Man, if you're, if, you're, if you're a man, come to men's prayer breakfast on Wednesday morning. Say, hey, man, 6.30 in the morning. Well, you know, it's the heart that makes it great. Show up there at 6.30. Sit at a table with men who have been praying together for years and listen to them as they approach the throne of grace one more story and we'll be done the man that i learned to pray from he didn't know me from adam i learned because he produced a notebook on prayer that i studied years ago his name was t.w hunt and he was actually a music professor if you can imagine that 
a music professor, but he was a great man of prayer, wrote books on prayer. And, and uh, when I was associate pastor at First Baptist Church in Dallas, we were without a pastor for uh, about six months. We were waiting on an interim pastor to come. And during that six-month period, I had a really interesting responsibility. I preached on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And I was a one-man pulpit supply committee. And I called denominational leaders and, and, and seminary presidents and other people and made arrangements for them to come and preach at our church on Sunday mornings. Well, I'd never met T.W. Hunt. I just knew him by reputation and by the influence that his writings had had in my life. Um, but I called him, and I, 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 we worked out a date for him to come and, and, and speak to our church. He was a very mild-mannered fellow. And it was my job to take the preachers that were coming in, and I'd usually meet them at the airport or, or wherever on a Saturday, and I'd get them settled into their hotel and, and give them instructions and make sure that they were there on Sunday mornings at the right time, and I'd get them back to the airport on Sunday afternoon, and all that kind of stuff, the logistical part of it. But I was real excited to meet T.W. Hunt, and so I, I met him and uh, took him to, the, to, to his hotel and checked him into his hotel and and uh, just carried his bags up to his room. And I, I must have, I must have, I must have been more obvious. I was trying to be real nonchalant and you know cool about it. But um, but I, I carry his suitcases in. I put them on the on the, the little stand. And I just kind of stood there for a second. And I said, um, uh, Doctor Hunt, is there anything else that I can get for you? Is there anything that you need? And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm good. He said, um, but I tell you what, I'm just about to, um, to spend a few minutes in prayer. Do you have time to stay and join me? Huh. I mean, you know, it's like Babe Ruth offering to give you batting practice. I mean, <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I, I, I'd, I'd like that. He was probably about 70 years old kneeled down at the foot of, of the bed there in that hotel room. And so I was on the side and I kneeled down and, and kind of propped my elbows up and closed my eyes. And he was quiet for a long time. And the, the strangest thing happened. Without a shadow of a doubt, before he said his first word. I knew God had joined us. And he started to pray. I don't remember any of the words that he spoke, but but I, I, I drove home kind of in a, a stupor. And I got home and I was trying to describe to, to Diane what had just happened. And I said, you know, it was like T.W. Hunt got down on his knees and God said, shh, shh. Oh, y'all, listen, be quiet. T.W. wants to visit. I've never been a great man of prayer. 
but I've been in the presence of a great man of prayer. And I know what it looks like. And I know what it feels like. And I know what I want. And if there were enough of us that wanted to be great men and great women of prayer, I suspect we would become just that because God wants that for us more than we want it if we are to be a church marked by the blueprint of the first church in the book of Acts. We must Father, your word leaves us speechless, especially as we consider what it means to be the people of God, to have access by the blood of Jesus Christ into the throne room of grace. Lord, I pray that you would stir in us a hunger for this reality, a determination to be in your presence, to to touch the hem of your royal robes. Father, I pray for Zach Dietz as he begins to provide leadership for the people of Evergreen as we find ourselves on our knees and on our faces. Father, in this generation of craziness, Let us be faithful in this most hidden and secret of all the disciplines. And as your eyes roam to and fro across the earth, may you find in this place a people whose hearts are completely yours. In Jesus' name we pray.